when the internet went from being a thing that you had to go to and sit down at a computer to get on, it was when we moved from that to it's always with me every moment, which means that I'm never paying full attention to the person I'm with. That is a rupture in human society and a rupture in human development, a rupture in human history. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Over the next few weeks, we're bringing together experts, advocates, along with political and school leaders to better understand the impact of social media on mental health, discuss how best to support young people in the social media age, and explore the role of regulations and restrictions. Today, I'm joined by Jonathan Haidt, professor at NYU Stern School of Business and one of the most acclaimed social psychologists in the U.S., Jonathan's research on the impact of social media on teenagers is helping inform policymakers across the country, and I'm so excited to speak with him today. Jonathan Haidt, it is great to be with you today. I'm very excited for our conversation about kids and adolescents, mental health disorders, and social media. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Jill. I'm very excited for this conversation. There's so much to say. There's so much going wrong and there's so much we need to do. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I, you know, I've been fascinated by your research first and then by conversations that we've had with you. And just to level set for our listeners, can can we talk first about the problem, the definition of the problem? How big is it, particularly with adolescents and mental health disorders? The, The growth in this area has been horrifyingly large and and extreme and fast. And so can you talk a little bit about what's going on? Yes. So I got into this because I started studying what was going on in universities when all of a sudden around 2014, 2015, students coming in seemed to be locked into defend mode. So our, our brains can either be in discover mode where, you know, outgoing, we want to learn, or defend mode, everything seems threatening. And at first we thought this was something colleges were doing, but as Greg Lukianoff and I wrote our book, which came out in 2018, it became clear that, no, this is a generational thing, that kids born in 1996 and later, which are now called Gen Z, right. are just really different from kids who were born in 1994 and before. I mean, there's never been this sharp a line. This one is a very sharp line, especially if you look at the mental illness rates. And here we're talking overwhelmingly about what are called internalizing disorders. That is anxiety, depression, self-harm. Those are the, 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 the sort of you turn it in and, and sort of punish yourself. And it's rising today to an extent where you wonder if everyone of a certain age is going to end up with some sort of mental health disorder, right? Because the growth is just so extraordinarily fast. It's, right it is extraordinary. Since it, since 2012, it begins right in 2012. And it just keeps going up and up and up. And at the present rate, you know, in 50 years, it'll be 200% of all kids will be you know, mentally yeah. ill, which is obviously not possible. Right. But an amazing thing that we found, so I started a substack, the After Babel substack, where a few colleagues and I, and Gene Twenge in particular, we are collecting all the evidence we can find on both sides. We put it out there. We have all these Google Docs laying out the evidence. And we have a post there on how data came out recently about how kids are doing today, how they fared through the COVID crisis. Uh, The CDC put out a report, the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, and everybody's saying, oh my God, the levels are so high. Look what COVID did to them. But if you look at our graphs, the graphs we've been compiling from the beginning, and the CDC too, actually, what you see is that all these rates are going up and up and up throughout the 2000s. And then you hit COVID and what happens? They just keep going up. It's absolutely astonishing. And the reason for that, the reason why COVID didn't make much difference is that 
if you look at the amount of time that teenagers spend with their friends, it used to be about two hours a day for a long time. Kids spend a lot of time with their friends, whereas older people are married, they're working, they're not spending two hours a day with their friends. And then you hit about 2013, 2014, and the young people begin plummeting, 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 so that they now spend about 45 minutes a day with their friends outside of school on average. In other words, Gen Z had already socially distanced themselves. They had already stopped seeing their friends by 2019. In aggregate, Gen Z was already so messed up by 2019 that COVID just didn't really add anything visible. Okay, so let's get to the punchline here, which is what happened in 2012 that just starts to stymie traditional adolescent behavior. Yeah. So I'm debating this with other researchers. There is not consensus, but I think the evidence all lines up for one theory and nobody has proposed an alternative theory. Hmm. And so the theory is this. Kids need to spend an awful lot of time with other kids. They need to practice their social skills. And in 2010, the first iPhone comes out with a front-facing camera. Uh, The iPhone came out in 2007. Very few teenagers have one. It's expensive. Mm -hmm. They start trading in their flip phones for iPhones around 2009, 2010. By 2012 or so, most teens have a smartphone, which means they now have a front-facing camera. The Samsung uh, also copied very at the same time. The second thing is that Instagram is founded in 2010, although it's, you know, used by photographers. It's a very small site at first. 2012 is when Facebook buys Instagram. Now, they don't change it in the first few years, but the huge publicity means that that's the year. If you look at the adoption rates, 2012 is the year that suddenly everyone is on Instagram. And by everyone, I mean girls. Girls and women are on Instagram. Obviously, lots of older people, men and women are using it. But in terms of part of teen life, what we know is that They're posting things about themselves, especially their face and body. Boys are not doing well either, but boys, their rates of depression and anxiety did not rise as much. For boys, what we're finding is that the central problem is failure to launch. Boys are not turning into men. Now, their suicide rate is up. So uh, I'm not saying this is just a girl problem. The boys are fine. The boys are not fine, but it's different. The boys, I cannot link the boys' problems to social media very clearly. The links are very loose. For girls, they're very strong. So something happened to girls in 2012. My argument is that it's that that's when selfie culture begins. That's when 11-year-old girls start photographing themselves in bikinis and putting those photos up for strangers to comment on. It's completely insane. And you can't possibly go through puberty as a girl not talking to your small group of friends, but having lots of contacts, weak contacts with lots of girls all talking about other girls and their photos of their bodies. This is an insane thing to do to middle school girls. So while girls are going through puberty for the most part and interacting with particular social media applications, you're seeing a direct correlation, causation between? Yes. So what is the evidence? So first, let me just, just to be clear, there is no other theory. Now people say, oh, you know, global financial crisis, because... The same thing happens. We had a Substack post. The exact same thing happens in the USA, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. The five Anglo countries, same thing happens at the same time. You get an elbow for the girls in self-harm hospitalizations and emergency room visits. So people say, oh, well, you know, well, school shootings, the Newtown shooting was 2012. Why did that suddenly make girls in New Zealand start poisoning themselves? That makes no sense. Mm -hmm. So you have to explain why did this start in 2012, plus or minus a year, in all the English-speaking countries at the same time, in the same way to girls. And there is no other theory. No one has come up with another theory. 
it's happening to both sexes, both genders. And this is just where I get a little tripped up with the theory that, well, social media is the primary driver for girls' mental health disorder growth and not for boys. How can it how can they both be failing at the same time? But because they're failing in different ways. Because girls and boys have to achieve different things in puberty. So even children's play is different. Groups of boys tend to form in larger groups and they spontaneously break into teams for competition. That's healthy boy development. They need group versus group competition. Boys need a lot more rough and tumble play, wrestling, even fighting. And also brain development, is that also? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, so the human brain is this giant thing that it has reached almost its full size by age five, but it's not at all wired up. Mm. And so there's a lot of wiring going on throughout childhood with a big increase at the beginning of puberty. So girls, the big increase is 11 to 13. That's the most vulnerable years. When their frontal cortex is wiring up, that's when you would least want your daughter to plug herself into a fire hose of garbage. Mm. But that's what they do. Around age 11, sixth grade is when girls go to get on Instagram in this country. Right. When they have this thing in their pocket, then they're always thinking about it, always thinking about it. And, you know, I have some, you know, I, I mean, I know lots of members of Gen Z. When you're talking with them, you only have a third of their attention because of at least a third or half is here. And then you lose, you know, from task switching, you just burn up 20% of their attention. They don't have much attention to give. Right. So they're not paying attention to you. They're not paying attention in class. They're not even paying attention to other kids in class because they're all thinking about their phones. And I, my argument is you cannot develop into a mature, healthy strong, socially skilled adult human being if you went through puberty thinking about this. Can you go deeper on that? Because you particularly think that it is not the phone per se. It is not videos on the phone or even video games on the phone. This is particular to social media, particular to a few apps that have like buttons and share capability. And can you talk about why that is like the secret disastrous sauce to this. Yeah. yeah. So, so if you think about the, you know, so the iPhone is an incredible tool. And when Steve Jobs introduced it, that famous, you know, Apple thing, he said, we're introducing three products today, a phone, a, you know, an iPod and an internet browser. And, you know, people are like, wow, three products. Wow. And then he holds it up. It's all three. It's all, <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, it's going to do all three. And then they, you know, there's a flashlight. You know, there's, there's mapping. So this is an incredible Swiss army knife. This does not make people depressed. It, it's just a multifunction tool. And I use the maps when I need it. The maps don't use me. I don't get addicted to the maps. The maps aren't designed to keep me mapping. And I use the flashlight when I need it. The flashlight is not designed to keep me flashlighting, okay? But it's once you get social media apps and Facebook in particular. So my, there, you know, there was MySpace. There were things that allowed people to post stuff, mm -hmm. but they weren't designed to keep them on MySpace. Facebook pioneered the techniques to keep kids hooked, to send you notifications, to hack into your need for social validation. I mean, we, there's, you know, there's dialogue about this. There's, there's confessions about this. Right. Their goal was to maximize engagement. They literally gave bonuses to engineers if they could increase engagement. And this was based on psychology. Like they, this was this was true. Like, how do we manipulate human brains in order to make it the stickier and stickier, keep them yep. persistently? That's right. Yeah. In fact, we know the we know the course at Stanford where a lot of them learned it. There's a professor there named B.J. Fogg. He taught a course since the 1990s called Persuasive Technology. Yeah. Uh, one of the founders of Facebook took the course. A lot of the designers in Silicon Valley took the course. 
they used a lot of straight behaviorist uh, mechanisms, you know, operant conditioning. How do you train an animal to perform a behavior over and over again? This is very well known in psychology since the 1920s. Uh, and all those techniques are used in the apps that are given to kids. So it's the problem is not the iPhone itself. The problem is that the iPhone allows all these other apps to have constant, constant access to a child's attention. And it, it can suck away all of a child's attention. So the child has really nothing left to learn, develop, grow, or relate to other people other than through this. Well, so the, and, the, and the other big problem is that this is tied to financial incentives. The way that these companies make money is by, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of aligned with, you know, we dump a lot of sugar and chemicals in uh, processed foods so that we cause addictions. We, you know, like with cigarettes, we manipulated them to the extent that there was, there were addictions and which caused lung cancer. And so we could undo parts of that because there was a good argument to do that. It's sort of the same thing is what you're suggesting. What we kind of know to be true is that, which is, I don't know that anyone's really hiding that as a secret. Like this, the, this is the way social media is built and it is built this way in order to generate revenue. Mm -hmm. Well, that's right. And so the, so the examples you gave to like junk food and sugar are good, but the business model is entirely different. Mm -hmm. So candy makers are competing to make the most appealing candy because the person who buys the candy is the customer. And so they're trying to get the customer and they want the customer to be happy so the customer will buy more. Now, there can be addictive elements with cigarettes, there's clear addiction. But the, the person who consumes the thing is the customer. The business model pioneered by Facebook, because originally it didn't have ads, originally, you know, all these things were just like, let's just get, let's just grow, let's just get, you know, millions of people and then we'll figure out how to make money. And they could have gone to a micropayments model that was possible where people could pay like a penny for content, you know, like, oh, do you want to read this article? One penny. You know, that was a possible way, but they didn't go that way. They went with advertising, which seemed great because like it's, you know, it's free. You get all this stuff for free. You can do everything for free. But what that means is that you're not the customer. So Facebook is very, very good to its customers. The customers are the advertisers. The customers are the people who pay Facebook money. What are they buying? Children's attention. If adults are being exploited by Facebook, that's not my concern. Right. It's children. Right. That's where we've got to stop this. That's where it's insane that we allow this. Do, do you think that what Elon Musk is doing with Twitter, where you pay to be actualized as a human, is that a step towards a better, safer social media app? In your opinion? Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, you know, Elon is doing all kinds of stuff. You know, some of it makes sense. Some of it I, I don't understand as much. But he has said on several occasions, he had a tweet early on when he was still buying Twitter, authenticate all humans. Yes. And so this takes us on to another topic, because for mental health, I'm not very focused on the content. I'm focused on the design, the architecture, things like that. But for democracy, which is my other whole focus, what is social media doing to democracy? There, it does matter a lot who's on. And the way to think about this is this issue of trust. We do this weird thing where we'll get into a stranger's car and we let him drive us away. And we don't, sometimes you don't even look at the driver. You're talking about Uber? Yeah, Uber. That's yeah. right. Okay. The reason is that we don't, and we don't, remember, we don't know his name. We do not know our driver's name. The point is that this works because the platform knows who he is mm. and knows who you are. And so you've got reputation, which means you have trust. Same thing with Airbnb, and of course, uh, eBay was the first to unlock this. You can have strangers transact if the platform handles the authentication so that there is trust and reputation. So those things work brilliantly. 
Now, social media doesn't have that. Social media, you know, you have foreign agents, you have crazy people, you have angry people, you know, most people maybe aren't using the real name, you know, and a small number of trolls create a lot of the damage. There's no trust and there's no capacity for trust. All of this would change if the platform authenticated people. Now, to be clear, it's fine if you post with a fake name. I'm not saying you need to use your real name. What I'm saying is if you want to post, the platform should authenticate that you're an actual human being, you're in a particular country, and you are over the age. Now, the age is currently set to 13, which is insanely low, but we don't even enforce that. So any nine-year-old can do anything. They can go to Pornhub, they can go to suicide promotion groups, they can go anywhere. So that has to change. We have to authenticate, at least authenticate age, and I think authenticate identity. If we do that, we'll have a much higher trust internet. I think that makes sense. I don't think we closed off on the like and share button. So I think we need to go back. There's a quote, the New Yorker article, the article is called How Harmful is Social Media? They ask you about what changed in in 2010. And you said that a former Twitter developer had once compared the retweet button to provisioning a four-year-old with a loaded weapon. A mean tweet doesn't kill anyone. It's an attempt to shame or punish someone publicly while broadcasting one's own virtue, etc., Can you kind of dive deeply Mm -hmm. into that? Sure. Facebook originally was like a glorified address book. Like, here's here's my page. I can link to your page. And then from your page, you're linked to some rock and roll band's page. Oh, I can skip around. I can see what they're doing. Right. So that was a social networking system. In general, connecting people is a good thing. So I have no objection to a platform that makes it easy for people to connect. That's fine. In 2009, Facebook, they've already developed a news feed, which is not about social networking. They've got, you've got the news feed, and now you add the like buttons. You can like things in your news feed. You can like things anywhere you go. Twitter adds the retweet button. Anything you have, you don't just like it. You can blast it out to you know all 200 or 2,000 of your friends and followers. So suddenly, in that, in that year, 2009, everything changes because now the internet, the, now social media is super viral. And we all understand viral spread now from COVID. We all understand if the, if the R0 rate, you know, if the spread rate is two versus one, that is a you know a global epidemic uh, instantly. Um, so it gets incredibly viral, contagious, fast. And then what's the incentive? Now people aren't just trying to connect like, hey, what are you up to? Now it's like, look at me. Look at this thing I wrote. Look at this thing I did. Look at this crazy stunt I did. Oh, look, I blew up a bathroom in my school. You know, I want to start a, a viral trend for kids to blow up bathrooms in their schools. So now they're called social media platforms. What's a platform? A platform is a thing you stand on to broadcast to others. So now we have everybody talking at and performing at everybody. But if everybody's performing at thousands of people, nobody has any time to listen to anyone. And this, I think, again, is devastating for teen mental health. Teens need to connect with a small number of close friends and form tight, strong relationships. Girls need usually a fairly small band of a few a few close friends. Boys tend to have slightly larger bands. But it's not. we're not talking 50 people. We're talking like between two and eight, like something in there. That's what they need. That's what they used to have. That's what social media disrupts. You can't do that because you're sitting in a room with, with a friend maybe, but you're both on your device. What you're talking about tickles me going back to the early days of social media. I remember a friend was looking at Twitter and deciding whether or not to invest in it. And we were having dinner with them. And he said to myself and his wife, you, why don't you guys tw- try this Twitter app? And we went, all right, well, what does it do? He said, well, you could post on it to other people in your network. And I was like, well, what what would I post? 
And he said, well, you know, like if you're at the playground and you want everyone to know where you are, then every... I was like, well, why would I want everyone to know? I think, and why it's tickling me is because my context was, you know, we came into technology and technology was advantageous to us in certain ways, mostly working, right? Or mostly work-wise, it was very advantageous to us. Efficient. Right, super efficient and and maybe some to some degree communication. But it, I, I didn't have the inclination to need everybody to know everything. Whereas my kids, my two kids, have, have they know no other world. Like they have this duplicative paradigm or maybe just a completely different paradigm where everybody knows everything all the time and they have to exist and persist in that world. And that is so bad for kids. And that helps explain why girls in particular are subject to contagions. So it's long been known just because girls are more interconnected, more sensitive to what other girls are thinking and doing and saying. Um, research from Nicholas Christakis and, and uh, James Fowler found with the Framingham Heart Study, that if a, if a man is depressed, it doesn't actually spread very much because men don't talk about it. Whereas if a woman is depressed, that has a slight impact to make her friends more depressed and her the friends of her friends slightly more depressed. So things spread among networks of girls more than boys. And that was true before social media. I wanted to give you a heads up on, we talked last week to uh, a researcher named Rick Palumbo, who's a PhD behavioral scientist who works as a psychological synchrony researcher at MIT. Oh, I love synchrony. Yeah. And he's a, also a psychiatrist or a counselor. And so he works mostly with marriage and couples counseling. And he, so he, he was saying, regardless of gender, using electrodermal sensors. So if a, you know, part of a couple starts to spiral, right? So it's like falls out of synchronicity. It gets more stressed out, more anxious, et cetera. The other partner follows suit. But if the other partner, if one of the two partners stops, you know, using DBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, if they reverse the trend, the other will, will physiologically reverse. And so, it, okay, yeah, no. So I just wonder, like, is there a piece of this that, you know, when you talk about how we're just going up and to the right in terms of mental health disorders, especially with girls, is there something that's like being ignited on social media, but then also contextualized, like, there is this, con there's this physical contagion that's happening. Okay, but, ah, okay. So this is actually one of the major points in, in my book about I have a chapter on childhood and what happened in childhood. One of the things that kids need is synchrony. Kids need, they love it, they enjoy it, and girls, I think, more than boys. So if you watch kids play, once they reach a certain age, girls do a lot of the clapping games, Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, and they sing songs more, and they do jump rope. So girls more than boys. Boys need, are, need rough and tumble play. They don't do as much synchrony. Girls really need to get in physical sync with each other, okay? So that's healthy. That's good. And if the technology did that, I'd say, okay, I can see how that, it can do that. But it doesn't do that. It doesn't do that because... When girls talk on the phone, so when you and I were young, girls spent a lot more time talking on the phone with other girls. That's great. That's totally healthy. They're talking, it's synchronous, and they can get in sync just by talking. And you add, now the technology, as you allowed the add the face, that's even better. That's wonderful. But the girls aren't doing that very much because they have thousands and thousands of, thing, of things to check, like, oh, you look beautiful, go girl. You know, that's not synchronous, that's asynchronous. So the girls are being swamped with asynchronous interaction, which is performative, it's performative. And that is bad in itself, but it drowns out what they need. And that's why girls are starving to death for social connection. The more they're on social media, the more they're starving to death for social connection. They don't get the synchrony, 
They don't get the eye contact. They don't get the physical touch. It's just this labor of like thousands and thousands of things they have to do every day. And then they're checking, did people do it for me? Did they like my post? This is not connection. This is performance. And, you know, middle school is so bad for everybody. Like everybody hates, you know, you look back on your life. Most people say middle school was the hardest time because yeah. it's pu- It's the beginning of puberty. Right. And especially for girls, they're 11 to 13. Boys are more like 12 to 14 or 15 is, is puberty for boys. So they go into high school more. But you take all the worst parts of middle school for girls and then you say, how about we move everything onto a social media performance platform? And there's bullying. You can be cyberbullied all, even on weekends. You're never safe. And people are, it's always gossip and drama. Always. Of course, they're anxious. So when you're talking to folks, so I think about who, who are the adults in the room at any time that are interacting with these girls and supposed to be understanding things like what you just talked about in terms of development and supporting healthy development. When you talk to teachers, administrators, parents, caregivers. It sounds like the Gen Xers and the millennials have broken the Gen Zers, not meaning to, but why? Why did we do such a bad job with these girls, including the, you know, the few people who created these super dangerous social media platforms and aren't fixing them, you know, now that we have hypothesis about what's breaking them? What do they desire to know so that they can help be a part of the solution? Yeah. So, so we have to look at each group separately. When I speak at high schools and middle schools, the teachers and the administrators, they hate the phones. They say it makes our lives hell. It's constant drama. We can't get the kids to pay attention. Very few schools ban phones. They say they do. What they mean is you can't take out your phone during class, which means that they sit in the back row and they take out their phone or they, as soon as they get out of class, they, they check their messages rather than talking with other kids. So teachers, the they all hate. It. I've never seen a teacher say, oh, I'm so glad the kids have phones these days. It opens up all this possible learning. Like, no, they all hate it. They right. hate it. And we don't listen to them. And I say, well, why don't you ban phones? Why don't, by ban meaning just you have a phone locker, yeah. you, you know, because you need the phone to get to school, yeah. uh, you know, and, and to arrange pickup, whatever. So kids should come in, they should put their phone in a phone locker, and then they would have seven hours a day phone free where they could actually talk to each other and listen to the teacher, and they would not be forever else. So the education establishment, I think, is very much on my side because it just makes their lives a living hell to have to wrestle with the phones. I'm a college professor. It's the same thing. I finally instituted a rule. No screens of any kind because my students can't handle it. I used to trust them. If you're on your laptop, you're taking notes. No, they're so addicted. These are MBA students now, 28 years old. They can't not check their texts and email and shopping during class. Just out of curiosity, though, when it gets to the college level, if they're doing something like that, does it impact their grades? It's like, at some point, kids also need to learn responsibility. Well, yes, but they're so addicted that if that they they can't have the phone out. So what I've done is to say, you cannot use any screens of any kind in class. And it's, it's amazing that the class I started that last year, it's the dynamic is so much better and the students love it. Because um, mm-hmm. we're so deep into addiction, but but one of the studies that I that I cite in this uh, upcoming post, um, in one case that students had to solve math problems with the phone on their desk. In another case, it was in their pocket. In another case, they had to leave their backpack in another room. Yeah, I saw this. And thing. as you'd expect, they get a higher score when the backpack is in the other room, and they get the lowest score when the phone is on their desk. Yes, because we we cannot attend to things. If you're an addict, you know it's like you've got your needle, you've got your stash of heroin. And then the rule is you can't shoot up during class. You have to only shoot up in between classes. And some kids can't wait. They shoot up in class. 
But anyway, but the larger question was why why aren't the adults doing anything? The administrators would love to ban phones. They hate them. But they always say the same thing. Some of the parents freak out. And the parents say, well, what if there's a school shooter? I have, I have to be able to reach my child any time, any time. And so some parents really object, and it, it makes it difficult to, to do what's, what's right for the kids. But John, you testified in front of the Senate, it, it, was, it was like a year ago now, right, to pass policy or law opening up access to youth data, right? So anonymized data, but so we could start to understand from a research perspective what was actually happening between kids using social media and kids suffering from mental health disorders. That's right. Technically, it was the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, which would force the social media platforms to share certain kinds of anonymized data with social scientists who put in requests through the National Science Foundation. So it was a way to, because, you know, obviously you don't want Cambridge Analytica to happen where people can just get the data and then use it. So, but but the broader point was, this thing is changing everything and we can't even study it. We don't even know what's going on. Right. They know what's going on. They won't tell us. They won't share. Twitter shared some stuff, but, but Facebook and Instagram don't share anything. Are we trending towards a world where they will be forced to? Yes, this year. This Just the last six or 10 months. Beginning when Frances Haugen first brought out her documents from Facebook in 2021, that's where things began to shift. In the last six months, things have really begun to shift. And the reason, I think, is because this is one of the very few issues in Washington that's totally bipartisan. Yeah. Regulating social media for to protect democracy, totally partisan. Each side thinks the other side is the problem. Doing something to keep children off or to make it safer for children, everyone's in favor. You know, most Congress people have children. They see it. They literally see it themselves. Totally. Many of them have had, their kids have terrible mental health problems. The Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, has been great on this. Yes. So. I think we're going to see action. Utah is taking action. A few states, California has passed the age-appropriate design code. So the states are taking action. But this needs to be done at a federal level. What do you think about the new bills that just were signed into law by the governor of Utah? Because uh, those go into effect next year, about a year from now. So Utah, so Governor Spencer Cox, I've spoken to him twice on the phone. He really wants to make Utah a family-friendly place. He wants to make it a, a healthy place for children to develop. So they were the first state in the country to sign basically a free-range parenting bill. So in America, if you let your kids out and someone calls the police because they see, oh, there's a child unaccompanied, you can be arrested. Or you're, you're, Once they call Child Protective Services, your, your life is hell for years. In Utah, they said, giving your kid independence is not evidence of neglect. You can't, there has to be other, you can't just say they're neglectful because they let their eight-year-old walk to school. So Governor Cox is really trying to create a safe environment and safe, I mean, healthy environment for children. And so one of the bills, I forget what order it goes, but one of the bills raises the age to 18 to say, you can't have social media without your parents' permission. Of course, your parents can give you permission. And then the other bill gives, I think it is, uh, gives parents access to everything that you're posting, everything you're seeing. There, I, I think that's a problem. I mean, especially when you're talking about 16, 17, 18-year-old kids. I think they do have a, a legitimate right to privacy. But the big thing is he's saying the platforms have to actually verify that you're over 18. Now, so far, none of them have a way to do that. Of course, they actually know everything about you. They actually know how old you are. But there's no formal way to do it. And so they're balking. And it will be difficult. But here's the thing. People are limited in their moral imagination because they think, well, how are you going to possibly verify people's age? I mean, they would just lie, Right. But it turns out there are so many companies that do age verification at different methods 
that they have a trade association. There's dozens of companies that have figured out how to do this, and they've done it for other industries. Sometimes it requires a credit card. Sometimes it requires a photograph, a driver's license. But there are ways you can do it with like a network of validators. There are all kinds of ways. Silicon Valley can solve these problems in three months if, if they have the incentive to do so. And so, you know, there are some things that you can object to about the bills, and they probably will be pared back, and other states can change it. But by putting a stake on the ground and saying the change starts here, I'm all in favor. And I would imagine there are a number of states talking with you because I know like the state of Massachusetts is part of a consortium of states that are suing TikTok and Facebook, Meta. All 50 are involved, but some states are more active. Massachusetts is one of the more active ones, yeah. And so that to me is very interesting that this is another tack that we're taking, we Gen Xers and millennials, to try to counteract this for the sake of Gen Zers. Will this cause any dramatic effects in, or is this sort of noise for Facebook and TikTok and they'll just spend the money? No, I think this, this is, this is real. And so, you know, until now they've been hit by various penalties. Oh, you know, a million, $10 million penalty. That's just dust. That's nothing. But you have literally tens of thousands of parents whose kids are dead and they think it was because of Instagram and and other, other platforms. If that goes badly for Facebook, we're not talking about $50 million. We're talking about something probably bigger than the tobacco settlement. So that's we're now talking real money, possibly bankrupting levels of money. And that's just for the parents of, of dead kids and kids who's, who, are, who are damaged permanently. Then you've got the states, all 50 states. When you look at the hospitalization rates, the, just the sheer amount of money. I mean, forget you know the welfare of the children, just the sheer amount of money that every state has to spend because so many kids have to be rushed to the hospital. That's, we're talking, you know, billions and billions of dollars. And so the states have a financial interest as well as, of course, a well-being interest of their citizens. And that's huge too. And so um, now that's going to take many years to, to go along. And what they're asking about, they're, they're, they're trying to figure out if we win, what changes can we impose? Because the attorney general can impose regulatory changes on the platforms, whereas the parents, if they win, all they can do is get money. They can't force, force them to change. That's interesting. You know, the one other thing I wanted to ask you about is, I I wonder about speed, too. We all grew up at the speed of humans, really, with maybe a little bit of technology enhancement. And then kids today, all kids are very aware of this rise in mental illness and global warming, and there's this perpetuation of school shootings. Maybe there's the downside of AI now, you know. And so some of these like big looming contextual things that they have to grapple with, and they have to grapple with it at the speed of social media, which is like beyond the scale of the internet, because now you're talking about like this network effect. And so, right. And so do you think just the pace of this is also getting to everyone's nervous systems? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, but now here we can bring in the critiques of modernity back from the 19th century. So, you know, as you get trains linking things together, things move faster and you get cars, you get electricity, you get the telegram. You get the te- so modernity has been just a constant increase. And you might say it's been a kind of a, you know, a parabolic or whatever the name is for exponent, you know, so it's been going like that for a long time. This is not, this is more than that. The big change I believe was when the internet went from being a thing that you had to go to and sit down at a computer to get on, it was when we moved from that to, it's always with me every moment, which means that I'm never paying full attention to the person I'm with. That is a rupture in human society and a rupture in human development, a rupture in human history. And that's why my project that I'm working on now, I'm calling it the Babel Project, felt uh, there was a glitch in the matrix. There was a change in the fabric of the universe around 2014. I felt it, 
it, it hit us on campus in 2014, 2015. That was the, that's what, you know, the coddling of the American mind was about. It was like something changed. And now suddenly the politics was different. Childhood was different. Anger was different. Um, so there was a fundamental change in the, in our wiring. And it's not just like, oh, it's faster. It's, it's that is inhuman. It is just inhuman. We have no downtime. We have no disconnect time. And our brains can't handle it. And you and me, our brains were, we went through puberty before this all hit. Um, if kids go through puberty like this, I believe it causes permanent changes. Well, John, I think the work that you're doing is really important. And it's really important that you also are popularizing it and, you know, kind of writing in different outlets and speaking in different outlets where people can really sort of, and in terms that people can understand so that we get our heads around it. And like I said, there's a lot more to of depth and breadth to what you're doing because you're also connecting all of these folks, both who are studying what you're studying and naysayers and different aspects of this in these Google Docs that we'll post and make accessible to everyone. So I'll leave you with this question. The Surgeon General, we're going to talk to him during this series. Do you have a question that you would recommend we ask him? Mm-hmm. Um, so I've spoken with him a, f- a few times. His office is very is, is really working on this topic. The most important thing the Surgeon General can do, I think, is to call our attention to this as a national problem. And then something I've been urging him to do is to propose some specific studies. What we need to do is study middle schools. We should focus on middle schools as the central place where the damage is done. What we need to do, we need school districts where half of the middle schools will have a phone ban during the day and half will have normal policy. And we'll know within six months whether it actually improves things. So just ask him, what research would you propose that we do your office can do many, many different things. Tell us how you're, you know, the multiple ways you're approaching this. Uh, and then if he, whether you mention it or not, just ask him about research. What research do you think we need to do to figure this out? I, I think it's great advice. I wish I had known you 15 years ago. <laughs> We're all struggling with this. I, I know. It's, 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 it's amazing. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Professor Jonathan Haidt. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.